Has anyone here watched that Netflix show, Marie Kondo? Oh, is that the, Marie Kondo? The one that's like, this one sparks joy. Yeah, so anything that does not spark joy, yeah. you throw it away. So Kylie and I watched one episode and redid our whole pantry. It was just so inspiring and inspirational. Sometimes getting rid of things is difficult. After watching Tidying Up Marie Kondo, I threw out all the things that do not spark joy, and now I miss my kids. <laughs> I really... Marie Kondo, does this bring you joy? The kid says, grabbing a piece of literal garbage. I'm saving it for a craft. It is hard to get rid of things. You might need it. I relate to to this one. I find old cables in my house that I know I should throw out, but then I'm like, nah, I better keep that just in case someone comes around with a Nokia N95 and needs to connect it to a fax machine. <laughs> Does anyone else have a box full of cables that they've had for 20 years at their house and they're afraid to give it up? Because in 10 years, I might need it to plug in that camera I don't have anymore. It's hard. We, we, Kylie and I moved out here. We got rid of so much stuff. We threw a ton of stuff away. We donated a ton of stuff. We had a wedding present that we forgot we even had from eight years ago that we never even opened. Um, but some of the stuff was kind of hard to throw away um, because sentimental value. There are some things that have so much emotion tied to them that our sense of identity is somehow connected to those things. Because those things represent people, they represent places, they represent memories and experiences, and we become attached to those things. So sometimes the old is hard to throw away, and the new can be just as hard to accept. 1879, Henry Morton was the president of the Stevens Institute of Technology, and he called one man's failure, or one man's invention, a conspicuous failure. And that one man was Thomas Edison, and that invention was the light bulb. 1966, Time wrote an article about what the future would be like in the 2000s. And they said that the idea of remote shopping, shopping outside of a store, would be a huge flop. Last year, we spent $513 billion online shopping. Sometimes we're forced to get rid of the old and accept the new. And that concept is found throughout ancient scriptures, but there's one character in particular in the first century. He was a, a leader of the first church. His name was Paul, or some knew him as Saul. He was a Jewish expert in the law, and he was like the person that every Jewish boy wanted to be when they grew up. So like every Jewish boy would have a poster of Paul hanging on their bedroom, like idol. He was a Jewish expert in the law. He was a Pharisee. He was a leader. He was highly respected. He followed all of the Torah, all, what, 600 laws of the Torah. He knew it all. He had such a... In Philippians 3, he writes a letter to the church in Philippi because he had this really weird experience where um, he saw a bright light and he recognized that light as the person of Jesus Christ. And that light kind of stripped away, that experience stripped away his very identity that he held with his Jewishness. And what was left, he completely, completely transformed him. So because of his high respect in the Jewish world, he found anyone who was not a Jew, Jew a threat to the Jewish faith. And so he harassed and persecuted Christians. And he wrote a letter to the church in Philippi 
He said, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for people who do evil things. Watch out for those who insist on circumcision, which is really mutilation. Circumcision, does everyone know what that is or do I have to explain it? Circumcision was the uh, identifying feature of a child of God. Somebody who was in God's family was circumcised. Paul was circumcised. After his experience with Christ, now he is saying circumcision, this thing that we put so much of our worth and our value and our identity in is mutilation. And he goes on after this. He says, if anyone has any uh, right to put their trust in things like circumcision, it's me. And he said that I was circumcised. He said, I am from the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. He said, I am a Hebrew. I have so much respect for the Hebrew Bible that I'm a Pharisee. I'm a religious leader. He said, out of respect for the Jewish faith, I harassed Christians because they were a threat to the Jewish faith. He said, out of respect for following the Bible, out of respect for our scriptures, I am blameless and followed all of the rules of the Bible. And then he said this, we are the circumcision. We are the ones who serve by God's Spirit and who boast in Christ Jesus. We don't put our confidence in rituals performed in the body. Those reasons I said. All those things, he says, were my assets, but I wrote them off as a loss for the sake of Christ. But even beyond that, I consider everything a loss in comparison with the superior value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I have lost everything for him. What I lost, I think of as sewer trash, so that I might gain Christ and be found in him. When Paul became a follower of Christ, he lost a lot of his Jewish reputation and identity. He would have lost his whole friend group. He would have lost much of his family, his faith community. He lost everything. So think about what those things are in our life that we put so much of our identity into, our career, our personality, our intelligence, the things that we know well, things that we're good at. And imagine just having all of that stripped away, what, what's left. Who in your life would you lose? It'd be hard. And it's not just that Paul lost all of that stuff. He considers it sewer trash, which the Greek word is skubalon. And that doesn't really mean sewer trash. It literally means dung. And if you read your NIV translations or your ESV translations, a lot of the English versions of the Bible, that word scubalon, they translate as rubbish or garbage. But this is not some like potato chip bag you throw in the trash. The Greek word means that it's something that's so repulsive and disgusting. You have to get rid of it because you can't be around it. It stinks. We tend to sanitize that. Some scholars say that that word would have been kind of a crass curse word. And so the NIV translators thought, well, we don't want to put that in the Bible. So we're going to, we're going to sanitize that. We're going to turn that dung into a nice squishy poop emoji that can make fart noises and it's cute. We tend to sanitize the Bible. And it's a good reminder that all of our uh, translations of the Bible are also interpretations of the Bible. 
People choose how they want to interpret those words in Greek. So Paul is saying, all of those things that I put my worth in, that made me who I am, it's dung, it's manure. But sometimes manure, dung, still has some value. Uh, follow me here with that just a moment. Do we have any coffee drinkers? Is anyone drinking coffee right now? Yeah. The most expensive coffee in the world, it's called black ivory coffee. It is $1,000 a pound. Why is this coffee so special, you might ask? That's a good question. It's special because it comes from elephants. How in the world can an elephant make coffee? I'm really glad that you asked that question. Elephants make coffee by being fed coffee beans, eating them, digesting them, pooping them out. And then somebody gets to sort through the manure, pick out the coffee beans, wash them off really well, hopefully, and then sell them to us for $1,000 a pound. The uh, creators of this coffee have said it has a very distinctive taste. <laughs> a very grassy taste. Because the elephants eat grass. Very earthy taste. But they say that it has the most refined, smooth coffee taste in the world. Because something about the digestive system of the elephant strips away the bitterness from the bean. So it's no bitterness in the coffee. Would anyone actually drink this coffee? Yeah, you try, try anything once. Poop coffee, yeah. Would you pay $1,000 to try it? No. The number one most expensive coffee in the world comes from the elephant's number two. It is so disgusting. I have a nice crappuccino, brew number two. Good to the last dropping. So the idea here is that manure had value for that coffee bean. Somehow it stripped away the bitterness. What made that coffee bean hard to eat wasn't the manure. The digestive process is what stripped away the bitterness of that coffee bean. This is a stretch on an analogy, but here we go. The, Paul's experience with Christ totally stripped away his bitterness toward other people. He went from an exclusive person who said, anyone who is not circumcised, who is not of my faith, is outside of God's family and has no part in God's family. His experience with Christ completely stripped that away. When Paul said that my past, all of that identity stuff is dung, he didn't completely throw it out. But what he did throw out was his attachment to it, his identity to it. He still used his past to relate to people, to connect with other Jews and non-Jews, to say, I know what you're going through. I know how you see the world because, trust me, I've been there. But he no longer attached his identity to that. And we so often, and this is, gosh, this is huge in, in uh, Buddhist thought, we become overly attached to our jobs, our careers, our families, our relationships, our stuff, 
we become too attached to our pain and our hurt, and we so overly identify with those things that they become us. But the message of Christ, and this is the message of even Buddhism, when you strip all that away, what's left is not nothing. What's left is your true self, is who you really are. And that's what Paul found. He said, when I stripped all that away, I found myself. I found myself in Christ. So that's not that all that stuff is bad, but sometimes we get overly attached to that stuff. So Jesus pushed Paul toward this religious inclusivism. And Paul experienced so much tension here in the church. So when he came to the church and he tried to bring them along this inclusive path in Acts, it says it wasn't long before some Jews showed up from Judea insisting that everyone be circumcised. If you're not circumcised in the Mosaic fashion, you can't be saved. And then James, who is the brother of Jesus, and if anyone should know what Jesus taught and what he was about, you'd think it'd be his brother. He steps up in the group and they're debating about this. And he says, believers, God came to the Gentiles, the non-Jews in the first place, to raise up a people of God. And the prophet's words agree with this. Therefore, I conclude that we should not create problems for Gentiles who turn to God. The Jews were saying, our scriptures, our Bible says that we need to exclude anyone who is not circumcised, who is not like us. James, the brother of Jesus, steps up and says, your Bible, your scriptures tell you the opposite says that God wants to include everyone in the world. You're using the Bible to exclude. The prophets speak to God's vision for radical inclusion. All people in the world deserve to experience love and peace and wholeness as human beings. So don't put burdens and problems on people who are longing for a safe spiritual community. Gosh, we have effed that up. We have put so many burdens and problems on people who are longing for a safe spiritual community. I look back through history. I think of the medieval times and even the Protestant Reformation when all the time of forced conversions and the church required all people to become Christians or else they would be tortured or even killed. I think of slavery in America and how the Bible was used as a weapon to exclude. Slave owners, when they read the Bible to their slaves, a lot of times the only verse that they would read is the one that says, slaves, obey your masters. Kind of burdens that they put on people. And I think of patriarchy. Our culture uh, where the man is at the top and how the Bible has been used to further that idea and put down women. Where that verse, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. We pastors have completely ignored the verse right before that that says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then we pastors forget the verse right after it says, husbands, love your wives. What we miss is that Paul was completely flipping upside down the power structure of his day that said men are up here, women are here. Paul flipped it upside down. But we tend to take out the part 
that gives us the most power and excludes other people. We've weaponized the Bible. I think of the LGBTQIA community. We've taken six verses of the Bible, which we call clobber passages, out of 31,000, and we've used those as a weapon against the LGBTQIA community, and it is a disgrace, and it is an embarrassment to me as a pastor. Why have we done that? So often, we've taken this scripture that we use, that we base our foundation values on. If you look at it the way Christ saw it, we see this progression and this arc toward inclusive uh, God. History, religious people pulling back on that, saying, I'm not ready for that inclusion. I don't want to include the people who are not like me, the people who do not look like me, act like me, vote like me. 2,000 years we've been doing that. We've been pulling it back. And so often the reason for pulling back on that inclusive arc of the Bible is this idea right here. Church sign, God said it, we believe it, that settles it. I went to a conference in Seattle last week um, called the Reformation Project, and it was a conference about how to help churches become radically inclusive to the LGBTQ community. And it was a conference of a lot of speakers and authors and ministers and biblical scholars. And I learned a lot of interesting and sad history about homosexuality in the Bible. And I want to share uh, with you all about this. First English translation of the Bible from the Greek Hebrew was the Tyndale Bible. Written by William Tyndale, 1494. He was born... Bible was uh, written in 1526. The Catholics did not like his English translation of the Bible. They burned him at the stake 10 years later and they used his English Bible pa pages as kindling for the fire. So 1526 is where we get our first English translation from the Greek and Hebrew. The first time the word homosexuality was used in the English Bible, does anyone want to take a guess? Nineteen forty six. Over four hundred years. For four hundred years homosexuality was not in the Bible. So there's a scholar, her name is Kathy Baldock and another guy, Ed Oxford, they scoured all of these uh, biblical translations in German and Swedish and Polish and Gaelic and Irish and all of these translations throughout the past 400 years to see how those six passages were interpreted and translated throughout history. And they found some interesting things. They looked at some German Bibles from the 1800s. And there's a passage in Leviticus 18 and 22. Um, your English Bibles typically say, man shall not lie with man for it is an abomination. The German Bibles from the 1800s says, man shall not lie with young boys as he does with a woman, for it is an abomination. They went to 1 Corinthians, another one of the clobber passages. Instead, it says, homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God in a lot of our English Bibles. They looked at these Bibles from the 1800s that read, boy molesters will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is a lot different. That is a very different translation. 
The Germans led the way in the world on biblical scholarship and understanding the ancient world and their culture and their context. And for hundreds of years, even Martin Luther, Protestant Reformation, 1543, he had his own version of the Bible from the Greek and the Hebrew. And in that version, the word that we see in our English Bibles for homosexual is Nabenschender, which in German means boy molester. For four, almost 500 years, scholars and theologians have understood these passages in the Bible to refer to an ancient practice of pederasty, which is when an adult male sexually abuses a boy. Because in that culture, it was widespread and it was prevalent and it was not about sexual orientation or a loving, committed relationship. It was about abuse of power. And we see that happening in prisons today. Men will have sex with other men to shame them. It's about power and shame. It is not about our understanding today of human sexuality and orientation. So to apply those ancient verses to this our modern understanding is a complete mistranslation. I wonder how our world of the past 50, 60 years would be different if in 1946 they didn't have that word homosexual in the Bible. So why did they do that? In 1946, there was a translating team. They were working on a new translation. It was called the RSV. They decided in the first Corinthians passage to combine two Greek words into one English word. And those two Greek words had two very different meanings, but they decided to simplify, and the word that they used was homosexual. So the biblical scholars uh, who were at this conference were the ones who went to the Yale archives to try to figure out what their thought process was there. So they went through thousands of correspondence, and they discovered a letter that a 21-year-old seminary student wrote to the translating team head because the seminary student realized that that was the first time this word had been added to the Bible, and he knew that all of his Bibles previously did not have this word. They were boy, an adult male and boy molesters. It was about sexual abuse, not sexual orientation. So he wrote to the head of the translating team and said, I think you've made a bad call here. And this is a copy of that letter. He says, Since this is a holy book of Scripture, sacred to the Christian, I am the more deeply concerned because well-meaning and sincere but misinformed, misguided people, those among the clergy not excluded, may use this revised standard version of 1 Corinthians as a sacred weapon, not in fact for the purification of the church, but in fact for injustice against a defenseless minority group, which includes the sincere, convicted, spiritually reborn Christian who has discovered himself to be of homosexual inclination from the time of his memory. The head of the translation team responded. He said, you're right. This translation is not a good translation of this word. Unfortunately, the RSV had been locked into a 10-year contract, and so the translation could not be changed. In that period of time, we have some other English translations led by some conservative translation teams, NIV, ESV, NASB, 
And what did they use as their framework for their versions? They used the RSV. Since then, some Bibles have begun to recognize that this was an unwise and even dangerous translation of the Greek and Hebrew. Tyrian scholar, he was a leading expert in the world on biblical languages. And this is how he translated this passage. Unjust people who don't care about God will not be joining in his kingdom. Those who use and abuse each other, use and abuse sex, use and abuse the earth and everything in it, don't qualify as citizens of God's kingdom. That is so different than homosexual. That is so different. These words that we have in our Bible are not as simple as God dropped them out of the sky and they just landed in our lap. These are people, sometimes flawed, misguided, misinformed people who made a decision how to translate. It takes a lot of work to know how to translate and understand these passages, but if we don't do the work, we can end up marginalizing whole groups of people from experiencing safe spiritual community. Ed Oxford, who discovered some of this about the RSV, said, it seems like there is a gay agenda. But it's toward those who are not accepting the homosexual, gay, LGBTQI community, and they have the agenda of excluding them from the family of God, from church. It's awful. It's awful. It takes a lot of work to translate these passages. Matthew Vines is a writer and speaker, and he shared this. I found it on the back of a T-shirt online. He said, this is maybe a more accurate way to say it. God said it. I interpret it as best as I could in light of all the filters imposed by my upbringing and culture, which I try to control, but you can never do a perfect job. That doesn't exactly settle it, but it does give me enough of a platform to base my values and decisions on. Reading the Bible is not black and white. It's a lot of gray. And it's important that we figure that out and not just believe what it says in a literal translation because we can risk excluding and marginalizing whole groups of people. So here's the thing. If we are reading the Bible in a way that does not lead us to follow Christ's command to love God and love your neighbor as yourself, then we're reading it wrong. As followers of Christ, everything that we see and do is through the lens of Christ. Love God and love your neighbor. If I ever say something from here, and it does not reflect love God and love your neighbor, then you call BS on that. Don't let me say it. When we don't look through the lens of love people as yourself, we risk hate, injustice, abuse, perversion of Scripture. And it is dangerous. There's a Baptist pastor that spoke at the conference. He used to be Southern Baptist, which was my heritage. 
And he was part of a church that became affirming over a long period of time. And he said this, you will save by becoming an affirming church. You will save more lives and you will lose church members. I almost cried when I read that because I know too many people who did not know how to live any longer because their family and faith community said, I do not accept you for who you are, who God made you to be. The church becoming more exclusive and against the ark of scripture and against the message of Christ is killing people and we cannot afford that anymore. And that's why mission gathering started that's why the Disciples of Christ started in the 1800s. It was a world where all of these churches were saying, you can't come take communion at our service unless you are our denomination and our strain of that denomination. And if you believe everything exactly the same way we do, and only when you're baptized in our church, then you can come up and experience the body and love of Christ with us. The Disciples of Christ was born from a group of people that said, that is not Christ. That is not the Ark of the Bible. We will welcome everyone to the table, everyone. That's why our denomination began, and that's why we are started Mission Gathering. That's why you all are here, because you all want to do that with us, and I know you do. But there are still people in our world, in our communities, who are not sure if they're okay, if they're accepted, if they are loved. It's our job, it's our call, it's our responsibility to say you are. You are loved by God, that you have a home, you have a safe place to experience life and community and friends, figure out how to become whole human beings. And it is messy as hell, and it's hard. But this is the place to do it. That's why we're here. So we are going to take communion as we do every week in the Disciples of Christ. And everyone is invited, but not everyone is required your choice but this has been a part of tradition of followers of Jesus since the night before he died when he met in a room with his friends and he wanted to kind of uh, start a family tradition we make lots of traditions with family and friends and uh, he said every time you do this remember me what I've taught you remember uh, Remember the inclusive community that we've created and keep doing this even when I'm not here. So he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat the bread, remember me. He took the wine or the Welch's grape juice. He said, every time you drink this, 
Remember me. Remember my life. Remember what I've taught you. Remember what I've done. Remember how I have treated people in our world. And when you eat it and drink it, it is as if you are saying the spirit, the love, the inclusiveness of Christ is in me. I'm going to live that out. All right, before we go, let's just take a deep breath. God, may we be your hands and feet. May we be your hope, your peace, your love in this world. In these coming moments and days this week when we feel overwhelmed and unsure and lost, may we take a deep breath and remember your life and your spirit and your love in us. May we remember that who we are is not in our job or what we do or even our family or friends or achievements, any of that stuff, our stuff, who we are at our deepest core is found in you, the source of everything that is. In Christ's name we pray, amen.